This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Football CFB by Paul John Dykes, presenter of A Celtic State of Mind, hosted multiple live events with footballers over the years and I've been to many of those events and I've thoroughly enjoyed them all. So first of all, Paul, I'm, I'm delighted that you're joining me today on Football CFB. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. It's over the last few months seeing the development of your podcast, Callum. It's been excellent to watch and you know everything you're doing is positive. So Fair play to you and thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, and the first thing I want to talk to you about, it's a very broad question. We'll come to your love of Celtic very soon, but when did your love of football start um, for yourself, Paul? Because in terms of the game, the memories lots of us have, whether it's jumpers for goalposts or playing in the street before there was an abundance of cars. Where did that come for you? I, I think... You're absolutely right. We do reminisce. We look back, you know, through through the haze. And I do look back on my childhood and football surrounded it. It's one of the things, I guess, from, you know, working class estates where football was the be all and end all. And I did live in a, an area where I've got a big brother who isn't even a year older than me. And I've got a big sister and a wee sister. And basically, you know, there's probably four or five years between a lot of us. And that that was the makeup of a family back then, Callum. So, so basically what would happen is your parents, well, my dad would go to work, my mum would be a housewife, and we would just be running about. You know, uh, When you weren't at school, you are out playing in the streets. And like what you said there, when there wasn't the, the fear of uh, motorists on, on, the, on the roads uh, and the fear of the, the issues with uh, you know, paedophiles, for example, Callum, although they were still there, there wasn't the same fear, I don't think. And we used to just run wild. And that normally meant there was a football involved. And we, we lived in a, a council estate in Fife, and most families were the same. So there was always a game of football. And I just remember it was just omnipresent. It's one of the things you can't remember a time when football wasn't part of your life. And Scotland is a football nation. This is a big thing. And my story is no different from millions of other people in my generation and other generations where it was just you were out for as long as you could possibly be out until it got dark. And that invariably meant that you were kicking a ball about either yourself or in a big group of people. So football was a massive part of my childhood. And I remember, to be fair, it was passed down from my dad, who is a massive football fan himself, who went to the games. That probably comes into the kind of Celtic aspect and how I was introduced to Celtic. But I just always remember the weekends being a big thing because... It involved my dad going to the game, home and away, going to Celtic. And it was a huge event almost because back then, you know, guys would be working all week either down the pits or in the you know, the shipyards, wherever they were working. And the football was a big release. So they would go probably in a supporters bus and it would involve the social aspect as well. So football was always there and you just kind of always wanted to go with your dad a lot, lot earlier than you were allowed. 
because it just seemed like a, a great community thing because it was my uncles, my cousins, my dad. Uh, but there was a certain age that you had to kind of get to before you were allowed to go because before then, Callum, you would just be a nuisance, you know. So football surrounded my upbringing and, it, and I think my upbringing was all the better for it, to be fair. I think you're, you're spot on in terms of the, the power of football, especially in, in your upbringing and, and the upbringing of so many young, young boys, young girls. And you mentioned your siblings there. Did it ever get quite competitive when you were running about with a football? I think I was probably the competitive one, to be honest with you, Callum. Um, I've always had that competitive streak, but I think that's a positive thing anyway. And there was a, a few house moves just simply because of my, my dad's work. My dad was a miner, so we went through the, the miner strike and we ended up moving from Fife. We moved away. My dad worked in France. He worked in Norway. He worked all over the place. And so there was always a bit of fragmentation, I guess, from you know groups of friends playing football and then you were moving away and things like that. But there come a point really where I continued to play and I played for teams, whereas my brother kind of lost a bit of interest. That age-old Scottish tale where you get old enough to, to get someone to buy you a drink and you <laughs> hang about street corners with a, a group of girls and all that stuff. My big brother was quite an early uh, entrant into that lifestyle. Not in a bad way. I mean, he's a good guy and he's a hard worker. But uh, he got into all that, whereas I was interested in, you know, you'd, I'd be washing my football boots on a Friday night, Callum, you know, because I always had a couple of games at the weekend. So up to a stage, there was a competitive edge, but then my, my big brother got into the music side of things and I, was, I still continued to kick a ball until such times as, uh, you know, I had to start working and all that kind of stuff. And my weekends, the priorities were elsewhere by then. In terms of Paul John Dykes, the footballer, what was your position? Um, how Describe your style of play. I was always a, a left-back. I always, always played number three. And this might come into the conversation. Rudy Vata will tell you I'm not a left-back. He just thinks I'm murder. But I always <laughs> play left-back. You know, and it was just through the school's football as well. Because talking about um, in the estates and in the, the different places in Fife playing football, it was a massive thing at school as well, Callum. You know, you'd kick a ball about before you went in in the morning. Uh, the two breaks or the break and the, and the lunchtime, it was all football. So you then started playing for your team. There was a boys' club. We, we played for the school. Uh, we played for the local YMCA and we played for Eskimo Boys' Club in Pennycook. So you actually played for three different teams. And I was always a left back. Uh, I'm, and I'm right-footed uh, on the football field anyway. And, but always, always played left back. And that, to this day, even when I'm playing bounce matches, I, I'm just comfortable playing there and I think it's easy to cut in on your right foot. So, left back, uh, never want to punt the ball, always try to play out from the back. So, that, that's me. Um, always got a game, but was never good enough, if you know what I mean. There was always guys in the team that you knew were going to get trials. You knew they were going to get picked for the district. I mean, a few of them played for Scotland and then progressed to S-Form with Celtic, Rangers, London United, Falkirk. And you knew they guys were going to do it, Callum, because from a young age, you, you start noticing the different standards, you start noticing the different levels. So although I was always good enough to play and I captained the school side and all that stuff, you realise very, very early on the you know, four or five guys who are going to actually get a chance. Uh, some of them made it, some of them fell by the wayside. I think it's the, the same story that everybody could tell. You know. You mentioned the fact you're a left back, you loved your football captain the school team but as you say you could always tell the four or five that would go on to 
to have trials, as you say, S forms, pro youth, obviously, the way they maybe talk about it these days. Um, yeah. In terms of your love of Celtic, I want to talk about that from your perspective of youth. Who was your first real footballing heroes growing up? My first hero would have been Paul McStay. Now, Paul McStay, again, it's this omnipresence of football and Celtic getting, you know, being born into that and it's indoctrinated into you. There's a few things in life, Callum, that you don't choose, you know, your surname being one of them. Uh, initially, your religion, because you're born into that and your football team. And people can change most of the things, but they never change their football team. No sane person changes their football team. I know there's a few people who've done it down the years. Um, so Celtic, for me, my first hero was Paul McStay. And as I say, it was a big event every weekend where Celtic were playing and the bus would come up and actually pick my dad up outside or a collection of cars and away they would go. And they, they were watching a Celtic side that was made up of people like Paul McStay, a young Charlie Nicholas, Roy Aiken, Tony Burns, Pat Bonner. And then it moved into the kind of mid-80s. Uh, we lost Charlie and then in came people like Peter Grant and then into the centenary side. But McStay remained a real hero of mine right through to the you know the time where he had to retire. Unfortunately, he retired in 1997. Still fairly young, early 30s, but his ankles. I mean, th this is a thing with Tierney as well. Kieran Tierney, a lot of these guys play so much football, Callum. You know, and I don't think it can be. You look at Scott Brown. Scott Brown, you, you think to yourself now, he can play for another couple of years. But there's other ones who are burnt out. And I just think if you look at the last three or four seasons that Paul McStay played, he wasn't the same guy. He's picking up injuries, carrying injuries. But I love McStay and I love his loyalty. He could have gone anywhere. And just through, you know, the things that I've been doing, I've spoken to Willie a number of times and Willie's told me some of the clubs that were after Paul McStay and he just wanted to stay with Celtic. So credit to him because it was coming into the modern era. The Premier League had launched in 93 McStay was still playing. He could have gone down to Everton. He could have gone to Inter Milan, Juventus, Atalanta. So many opportunities. And he devoted his football career to Celtic. So he was a hero then. He's a hero now. And he's one of the very few ex-Celts that I've not interviewed that I'd love to interview as well. You mentioned the fact that he's an ex-Celt you would, you would love to interview. You talked there about your dad and, and the aspect of your dad always going to football and you as a kid, naturally, as you do, you think, oh, I want to go there. And obviously, it's, sometimes you're reined back because, you know what it's like, football culture, maybe your dad's going with a few pals, having a few beers, and you have to bide your time. But what was your first memory of getting to go to a football match, Paul? Because my first ever football match was at Celtic Park, Celtics at Johnston. And I remember walking in, it was 2001, and I remember just my eyes completely dropping. I just could not believe what I was seeing. And I recently took my niece, who's um, seven to her first game um, last year, and she was the same. She walked in and she just looked as if, wow, I cannot believe the size of this place and, and what's going on. Absolutely. I, I, I totally get that. And I, I vividly recall it. I mean, my brother thinks I've, I've got a freakish kind of recall for things because I remember, you know, the morning leading up to the game. As I say, I had wanted to go to the games for many, many years. But, you know, at the end of the day, back then, your, your parents were real, you know, real working class. Everything was worked for. There was no credit. You know, it was, a, it was a tougher life, definitely back then. Four kids, probably under the age of 22. My mum and dad had four kids kind of thing. So 
that the football was a release. It was a release for the working man back then. And I say that because it was generally the working man, Callum. The game's changed now and so many more women uh, go to the games and that's for the betterment of the game. But back then it was really just a, a man's kind of sport and that was what they did and they worked hard. And I just recall week after week, you know, my dad coming in with the, the Celtic scarf on and obviously you can smell the drink on on his breath and the fags and <laughs> the chewing the chewing gum to try and disguise that smell. And he would just reach into his inside pocket out with the programme and it was just this mythical thing. There comes a point in your life where you're allowed to go and do that. And uh, it finally happened in 1987. I went along to the Tommy Burns testimonial, another special man in the history of Celtic and in my Celtic supporting life, Tommy Burns. And they were playing Liverpool. So everything was was perfect that day. It was a beautiful sunny day. It was at Celtic Park. And we're playing Liverpool. And as far as I was concerned, Liverpool, for Celtic fans back then, Liverpool was your English club. Uh, you loved Liverpool. I think there are so many reasons for that. We've spoken to a few guests recently, Callum. Phil Scratton, particularly. Phil Scraton, rather. Uh, the professor who speaks about the background between the relationship between Celtic and Liverpool. And so you went to the game, and on that particular day, Kenny Dalglish is the player manager of Liverpool. And at the end of the game, Danny McGrain, who had been released that summer, came onto the pitch and took the adulation of the Celtic fans with Tommy Burns. So I witnessed two Quality Street kids in the very first game that I went to see. And obviously that became relevant in the future when it came down to me writing Celtic groups. But I remember the, the feeling, I remember the smells, I remember everything about that, the colours. I remember thinking, wow, it, it's just such a huge arena back then to a wee boy, Celtic Park. And we were behind the goals in the Celtic end and you seemed, you felt that you were so far away from the pitch. And I remember thinking, I can't wait to get home and watch this on the TV, although it was a testimonial, so it wasn't on the telly back then. Because I wanted to see the close-ups and all that, because you had become accustomed to watching the games on the telly. But then my dad, I remember my dad saying in the morning, me and my brother, you're either going to love it or loathe it. And my big brother wasn't too keen on it. Whereas I, I was hooked from that day forth, I was hooked. And I've been watching Celtic ever since, 33 years, uh, man and boy. In terms of watching Celtic, as you say, getting to go to the game, that experience, it's, it's almost in a strange way, like an experience of I've arrived now and although you support the club from a young age, you support anyone supporting any football club, when you go to your first match, it's a big moment in terms of, it's, as I say, that strange feeling of, I've arrived here, I'm an even bigger part of it now. And you mentioned the fact the Tommy Burns testimonial, watching that great Liverpool side, seeing Kenny Dalglish as a player manager. Going on from there, Paul, what was your main experience of Celtic going forward? Because obviously the 1990s for the club was a, a tough old time and for you was that the sort of time where you're you're referencing your dad and you're speaking to him saying what is it always going to be like this because <laughs> it was a, a it was an interesting time you've recently spoken to Andy Payton I've spoken to him as well and and it's as you say it was it was an interesting time and you think back now and and how the tables have turned and and, and, and as I say I imagine at the time I didn't live through that I imagine it must have been a case of is it always going to be like this? When are we going to get our turn as such? Aye, it did. It got to that point, Callum, where you, you did feel that you were never going to see the, the glory days again. And 
the introduction I had obviously was the centenary season. So that continued this this uh, belief that Celtic won all the time or most of the time. And we were this massive European superpower because you're brought up on the stories and the songs and the videos and the books. And after the centenary season, and of course, there was a huge momentum that year because Billy McNeil had returned as manager. The centenary celebrations, there was a bit of work done to the front of the stadium. McAvaney came in. It was very exciting. But then after that, as you say, it was nine years really in the doldrums uh, for the most part. A couple of trophies here and there. Um, but I think it galvanised me as a Celtic fan. I got my first season ticket during the nine in a row that was won by Rangers. So it certainly didn't put me off. You know, that's a big thing for me. And I think with football, no matter how bad it gets, I think people are more likely not to go when it becomes financially difficult to go. Uh, very uh, few people, I think, decide, I'm not going back because this is rubbish. I, I was, I, I thought, you know, faithful through and through was, was definitely something that Celtic fans were. And it galvanised us during that time. And I remember my first season ticket because I was very independent. And, uh, you know, I was, when we had moved house, we'd come back to Fife. And I went down to the paper shop and it was the old P. Diddy. It was like, you know, how many paper rounds have you got? Give me them all, you know, so that I could make <laughs> a wee bit more money and then save that money up, buy a season ticket. My first season ticket was 95 quid because I was under 16. Done it all myself. And at that point, my dad was working away, so I was going through myself, through to Glasgow on a bus, a local bus that went that left from Blair Hall, uh, a wee village in Fife. So it was all about the the actual experience of going then, because what you were watching once you got there wasn't great. So you used to uh, be a, a kid in a bus full of adults who were talking adult chat and the banter that flowed with that and the drink and all that stuff. So I think it was a it was a, a, a steep learning curve for me. But certainly the loyalty of the Celtic fans is unquestionable, you know. And, you know, I, I'm very interested in that whole period in the club's history, Callum, because I just feel that it was a street movement that allowed, you know, the Fergus McCann move. It was a street movement. It was very uh, much one of these things that the fanzine culture breathed life into some groups of Celtic fans who were then able to assist the businessmen such as Fergus McCann, who had great allies and people like David Lowe, uh, John Keane and others. So the, the fans played a massive part in that. And that was before the communication um, possibilities of the internet and smartphones. You know, people were very organised back then, Callum. People were putting adverts in newspapers uh, to get people together at rallies so that we could get a message over. And there was never a belief in my mind. There was never a thought that that Celtic would would ever die. And at that time, they were eight minutes, famously eight minutes away from going into receivership. I just knew that there would be a saviour because Celtic were too... There was a fairy tale element to the club, as Billy McNeil said, and someone would come, you know, rolling in, and that person was Fergus McCann. And it's easy to say that had Fergus not came up with the cash at that point, someone else would. Well, Fergus was the guy that did it. And I remember doing an interview a long, long time ago and saying that McCann, for me, is in the top three most important figures in the history of Celtic Football Club. And that Brother Walfred was the was the important figure due to the fact that he founded the club, him and others. Jock Steen made the club what it was and made the, 
you know, a European post and Fergus McCann saved it. And everybody else has uh, worked towards this thing called Celtic. But for me, they're the three most important people in the history of the club. And again, Fergus McCann, what a book that would be. But I don't think he'll ever write it because he would want to be truthful and that would upset a lot of people, I believe. Well, that's very true. And I recently, well, a few months ago, interviewed Jock Brown and he was talking about what it was like working under Fergus and working with him in that uh, period of time. Do you think now, especially with the, the power of hindsight, that Fergus McCann gets the credit really that he deserves for stepping in at that time? I think it's been a long process. We now look at Celtic, and even in this current situation, it's relevant, Callum, that question's relevant today, where we are, where Scottish football is. Because prior to McCann, Celtic had gone through decades, you know, a generation of uh, people running the club who were incompetent. And the only reason it was a continued success, well, it was twofold. Uh, the first one was the support. The support continually backed the club. And because of the, the big gates that Celtic were getting at that time, because there wasn't the same onus on merchandise and that type of thing. There certainly wasn't broadcast deals and sponsorship like there is now. Um, the fans ensured that the money came through the turnstiles. And Celtic as a club had a fantastic youth policy. And, you know, that goes right back to the 50s. And when necessary, they were able to sell a player for big, big money. And probably the only time they didn't do that was during the prime of the Lisbon Lions. You know, we never sold a Bobby Murdoch or a Bobby Lennox or a Jinky Johnson. But prior to that, we did. We sold Bobby Collins, Willie Fernie, Paddy Terrans. And then after it, you know, we sold Charlie Nicholas and we sold players like that. Even moving into the 90s, we were selling players for big money and that continues. So every time that we needed to fill a gap, we would probably sell something that cost us very little in a homegrown player. But then that all changed with McCann. McCann completely changed the, the business set up of Celtic Football Club. And that's been continued by some very capable custodians right up to the present day. And, you know, people may criticise Peter Lowell, but the way he's ran the club, I would ask anybody, would you much rather uh, the previous regime being in charge? Well, the answer is no, a resounding no. And the very fact that Peter Lowell has managed the club so well financially has meant that Celtic have a cushion. I mean, no one is immune to the current situation, but Celtic certainly have a cushion, Callum, where, you know, we'll get through this. Celtic will get through this as a club and as a business. And, you know, I, I am interested as to what will happen after that because I think Celtic will be looking at other options now because of what is going to happen to Scottish football and the effect of that. So Fergus McCann, the legacy is where Celtic are now. You look at that stadium, you look at the bank balance, you look at the team on the pitch, and none of that would have been possible without Fergus McCann. So I think now people are coming around to that that viewpoint, Callum. But it took a long time. You know, Jock Brown spoke about the booing, uh, obviously, when he was unfurling the, the league title flag against Dunfermline that day. And that that's the kind of thing. Football fans are fickle, but I think to a man and woman, everybody who booed that day would admit that they were wrong. You know, people could change their minds. And Celtic fans were wrong that day to do Fergus, and I think every single one of them would agree with that. Indeed, and that's something that definitely comes through as you speak to, to I say I'm speaking to you now, but an older, that older generation of fans, from my perspective, that were actually there and lived through it. It's, as you say, it's interesting to hear 
how they reflect on that. And we talked about how you get your first season ticket, um, you, you earn that with your paper round. How amazing was the season under Vim Janssen? I mean, 22 years since Celtic famously stopped Rangers bid for 10 in a row. Just, just describe that season from your perspective. It was incredible, and it was the culmination of all the, the dark years that you mentioned. I remember the Hamden season, which uh, ended with a cup win, and you thought at that point with, with Tommy Burns at the helm that it would be Tommy that would bring the title to Celtic Park. I believed that. I thought a lot of fans believed it. And when he started putting his team together, you know, with the, the three who became known as the Three Amigos, um, De Canio, Van Hooydonk, Cadetti, uh, as well as players like Andreas Tom, and then your proper selks, and amongst that, you know, Paul McStay, Tommy Boyd, John Collins, you thought Celtic are going to win the league. It's going to happen, and Tommy Burns is going to be the man. But Fergus McCann, going back to him, he realised, I, I, I believe, that he needed somebody to be in position who didn't have that same emotional attachment because your view can be clouded in business and in life and in relationships and in all manners of different aspects, Callum, as you'll know, if you've got an emotional attachment to something. And I think Tommy Burns had that more than just about any other person in the history of Celtic Football Club. And it, in many ways, it could have been his undoing. So Fergus was determined to bring somebody in who didn't have that link to Celtic. And some of the names, actually, uh, under Fergus McCann that, that weren't just pipe dreams, you know, that uh, we were interested in bringing into Celtic Park are astonishing. Bobby Robson. Bobby Robson was a manager at one time that McCann wanted in uh, as a Celtic manager. Ruth Hewlett, uh, who for a period of time, Callum, looked as though he was going to be a very successful manager. But the man that came in was the bold Vim Janssen. And again, we were in a time back then where you couldn't just tap it into your phone and, or your laptop and uh, check the history of, of anybody out. And so, you know, the older heads knew that he had played for Feyenoord in 1970 when they beat Celtic in the European Cup final. But most people didn't really... You know, th this is a thing as well. The, the propaganda, the, the Scottish mainstream media at that time, told you that the guy was a flop. Uh, you know, the second worst thing to hit Hiroshima was the headline. And they made you believe this was never going to happen and Rangers were going to win 10 in a row and he brings in Henrik Larsson, you know, uh, a guy who many of us had watched at the 1994 World Cup, distinctive because of the dreadlocks uh, and obviously because he was a great player as well. But it took a wee while for the, the team to bond. And strangely enough, just through speaking to players in that, Callum, the the moment that a lot of them think there was a change and they started playing as a team and there was a bond was when Henrik Larson and Tosh McKinley had that flare-up at training at Barrafield and yep. that resulted in Tosh headbutting Henrik and breaking his nose. Uh, up until that point, there was a real kind of breakdown between the Scottish-based players and the guys from Sweden and, and you had various players you know, uh, that had come in from overseas. And it was at that point that there was, a, there was a proper breakdown of the barriers and they started playing more as a team. And, you know, you, you started believing, particularly around about the New Year's Day game, the 2-0 game, where Lambert, who was a phenomenal signing that season, and Craig Burley, whose goals from midfield were just a massive part of our success. You just thought to yourself, that's one thing that, Tommy Burns was so emotionally involved in Celtic and making Celtic a success 
but he just couldn't get that monkey off his back. And that monkey was the Rangers' domination. And you looked at that, and by the way, Vim Janssen and Celtic only beat Rangers once, and that was it, the New Year's Day game. But it was such an important game. And, you know, it was written in the stars. And some of the big players that season maybe don't get the same kind of adulation as Hamid Lassen or Hamid, uh, Harold Ratback. But guys like Jackie McNamara, Callum, Jackie was astonishing. Up and down that right-hand side, set up so many important goals. We Jackie was a warrior as well. He loved a battle. And uh, even we said Simon Donnelly, you know, he was a few minutes away from being the guy that scored the goal at East End Park that won us the league. So, yeah, it was really such a relief. So you're celebrating because you've got all these emotions, but what a relief it was as well. And then, as Celtic often do, they pulled the rug from under your feet because then Janssen left a few days later. But um, And that threw us into a whole new era. But yeah, what a relief. And, you know, since then, there was a couple of seasons in between times, but since Martin O'Neill came in, it's been really, Celtic have dominated Scottish football since Martin O'Neill took over uh, the manager's job. And I don't think it's going to change, Callum. I think we're too far ahead now. And I've got my own theories about that. I don't actually think long-term Celtic will be playing in Scottish football. And I think the pandemic will add to the the uh, exit strategy. Um, and it's something that nobody had planned, you know, but I just think it, it will happen because the Scottish League, I don't think will have uh, the foundations for Celtic to to actually perform and develop, unfortunately. And I fully believe that, that those discussions are probably already underway. In terms of Martin and Neil, you mentioned... Martin there um, coming in. Before we talk about the Anil era, I want to talk about Dr. Joe and, and the signing of Lubo Moravchik. Just, mm-hmm. just describe what it was like watching him because, as you see, the days before Google and a smartphone to, to take out your phone and, and get the up-to-date history and every career statistic, but you look back at some of the headlines now when he came in and you think, I mean, that was just bizarre. <laughs> some of them bordering on xenophobic, never mind bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, some of the, the headlines back then, Callum, were preposterous, you know. They, they actually uh, compared Fergus McCann to Saddam Hussein. You, you just, it was ridiculous, you know. And as you say, we bring in Lubomir Moravchik. And again, as a, as a journalist worth their salt, they should have been able to contact various people who might have had uh, a knowledge of French football, for example. And they could have given them a wee bit more information on Lubo. But instead of doing that, they basically just wrote him off. Uh, Hugh Keevans famously wrote him off, and uh, I'm pretty sure he regrets that now. Uh, and he said that, you know, we were wrong to go for Lubo when we could have got uh, John Spencer for, I think it was three or 400 grand. We brought in this guy who, you know, was basically a genius. And I speak quite a bit on, on a Celtic state of mind about, you know, cult Celtic, the cult of Celtic, the songs, the players, the strips, that kind of thing things that happen at a game that become almost like mythical cult stories. And there's no way you can you can say that Maravchik's a cult player. I know he was voted into a cult 11, um, the Axon cult 11. The guy was a genius. He was an absolute genius. But I think the, the whole um, saga around him signing and no really knowing who, who we were signing, what we were getting. Uh, but Joe Venglos knew because he'd obviously managed them for Czechoslovakia at the World Cup in 1990. And Venglos, again, things didn't work out for him, but that was a wee bit of forward thinking, actually, bringing him in uh, when you look at his pedigree and 
Brett Gloss had managed at Celtic Park for Sporting Lisbon back in the 1980s when we beat them 5-0. Uh, in actual fact, they'd beaten us 2-0 in Portugal. And he, he had the experience you know, all over the world, really, in, uh, in English football as well. Didn't work out for him. But what Ben Gloss did was he brought in some class players who Celtic benefited from in later years, and Maracic was one of them. I always remember Callum, <laughs> strange enough, taking a girl for a date, and that date was Celtic versus Bordeaux, because that's how I used to roll. And it was like, I'm going to watch Lubo Maracic, and that was, uh, that was actually a date, believe it or not. Uh, no, I didn't marry that girl, actually. I don't know what that says about her. It says more about her than it does about me, I think. But Maravchik was, was an absolute genius, a genius on the football park. And we all remember, it was a two-footed nature of Maravchik. It didn't matter what foot it went oh, to, you know. Um, controlling the ball with his backside against hearts. And, and it's funny now, all these years later, talking to people like Neil Lennon and Chris Sutton, who go on about, you know, Lubo being one of the favourites. And O'Neill let him away with murder. He didn't work hard enough, but he got away with it because he... What he could do, he could change a game just with one moment of skill, one moment of talent. And uh, I think we're blessed to have guys like that. The guy, Maravchik was incredible. We've seen some amazing players in the modern day, Callum. You know, Nakamura was the genius. Larson, Maravchik, these guys were brilliant, absolutely superb. And I think we've got a few in the team just now, and players like Eduard. And we can never forget the Scottish talent as well. Uh, young players that come through sometimes don't get the same kind of adulation for some strange reason um, as someone like Ben Belly and Edward. But we've got some very talented players now. But we've, we've been very lucky. Uh, and I think those guys have been lucky to play for Celtic as well. It goes both ways, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and in terms of the talent, I mean, you look at when Martin Ariel comes in, you think of the likes of Hearts and Neil Lennon coming up, um, Chris Sutton. Um, obviously, I know Paul Lambert came in years previously, but even when Martin and Neil came in, Paul Lambert and, and that treble winning season with Martin was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, when you look at Martin and Neil's reign getting to a European final in Seville, I mean, how do you reflect in his reign? Because as you say, the, the building blocks for where the club are now were, were really laid by Martin and Neil and the dominance that he had when he was here for, for, for those five or six years. You're absolutely right. Uh, the dominance on a football park um, started with Martin O'Neill. And it's interesting that the three successful managers we've had have all been Northern Irishmen, you know, Neil Lennon and Brendan Rodgers being number two. But O'Neill was special, I think, because we were so far behind Rangers when he came in, 21 points behind the previous season. Rangers were free spending. We know that they were free spending money that they didn't have, Callum. That's not controversial. It's just it's been proven since then. And Celtic had to compete. And I remember O'Neill coming in. And you're right, he did actually inherit a very, well, I say a, a very good side, a group of very good players. You know, he had a Champions League winner in Paul Lambert. You know, he had Lubomir Maravchik, Henrik Larsson, Stan Petrov, and others that he inherited. But he supplemented that. And he supplemented it with, you know, there were big money buys, but we've, we've had managers who've spent big money and not had the success. So... Not only did he spend a lot of money, but he brought in the right players. And he brought in giants of English football like Chris Sutton, eventually Neil Lennon. That was a protracted transfer. Alan Thompson. And he also brought in guys like Baldi and Valharan, who were just giants at the back. You know, And it was a case of 
Celtic may have been bullied when you look at the, the stature and the athleticism of the Rangers side that Advocate had built. They may well have been bullied, but there's no way you're going to bully a Martin O'Neill side. And I also think that the mentality of O'Neill and his backroom staff, you know, you've got O'Neill who's a European Cup, multi-European Cup winner. You've got John Robertson who played in the same Nottingham Forest side. So they are coming into a club with a great European history. But they've got, you know, they've also got the benefit of being European winners themselves. And that allied to the, the ambition that O'Neill clearly had to, to make Celtic a European force made you believe that, that we might actually do it. And there was a few occasions, I mean, the Seville one being the obvious one. Um, I'm looking at a Seville video just now, actually, Callum, because I'm, I'm wondering what my next video club entrance is going to be. And I think I might do something around Seville. It was such a great time. But ultimately, we didn't win anything that season. Um, and there were other seasons where we went on brilliant runs under O'Neill that you thought we might even be a better side. And I know that's strange to say that. Uh, but even some of the old heads I speak to about Celtic reckon that we had a couple of seasons where we were better than the team that won the, the Cup in Lisbon. But it just, uh, it, it needs, you need a bit of luck as well. You, you, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And when you look at that Seville season and that Seville run, there was something in the stars, man. It was just, it was so special. And the whole club takes a huge amount of positivity out of that. You think about every facet of that club. A European run does wonders for a football club like Celtic because our, our heritage and our traditions are rich in European success. And I always say this to, I say it a lot of the time uh, when I've got someone from the 60s or 70s at a live event, Callum. People, particularly down south, they don't give Celtic the credit that we deserve in terms of European football. Because they think that, you know, there was a flash in the pan one year and we won it in 67, but it wasn't like that. You know, between 1964 and 1976, in the 12 seasons, Celtic reached at least the quarterfinal of European competition nine times in 12 seasons. That's astonishing. It's, it's disappointing that we didn't win more than one. So to bring that European pride back, we hadn't progressed past Christmas in Europe since 1980 until Martin O'Neill came in. That's how bad it had got, you know. Um, and it was first round, second round exits, and we had to suffer things like getting beat from the Swiss Neuchâtel Zamax, 5-1 away from home. <laughs> and then all of a sudden O'Neill comes in with this blueprint, and he's like, you know, I'm not going to allow that to happen. And he didn't. And we had some great European nights and some great European runs. But Seville, in my Celtic support in life, is the biggest disappointment, Callum, because... You know, to have a, a second European trophy in the cabinet would be tremendous. But when you look at Celtic and the great scheme of things in Scottish football, and the amount of times they've played group stage Champions League football, knockout stage Champions League football, I think we're doing okay. I think we're doing okay. When you look at the difference, obviously the obvious one is, is the financial difference in uh, Scotland to, to the, the bigger nations and the elite football nations as they're now described as. I think Celtic are doing okay. And you look at the performances against Lazio last season, for example. I think Neil Lennon, there's a baton that's been handed down. You've got Brian Clough as a manager who won the European Cup in Nottingham Forest, who could have been described as a provincial club. And he went and won a European Cup twice on the bounce, Callum. It's just an incredible story. And then, you know, that filters into Martin O'Neill. Martin O'Neill's influences on Neil Lennon 
I truly believe Lenin within himself thinks and believes that he can do something in Europe. And I think the signs were positive this year, particularly the two Lazio games, but elsewhere as well. The way he approached games, the way he set his side up, he was far more adaptable than, than Brendan Rodgers ever was in Europe. So if and when we get back to normal, Callum, that's going to be interesting for me. I think Celtic will continue dominating Scottish football for as long as they're in it. Uh, but I think there was some positive signs in the Neil Lennon performances this year. But Martin O'Neill, massive influence on Lenny. And as I say, he's, he's kind of passed down the baton to Lennon. And long may that continue because I don't, I don't see him moving anywhere soon. He's a young man. Neil Lennon's still a young guy. So he's, he's my Celtic manager as far as I'm concerned. I don't want to see him going anywhere. We talked there about the, the European heritage. The Neil Era in Seville, the... The, the, the run getting there. I mean, the next person I want to talk about, obviously, leading on from Anil is Gordon Strachan. You think Gordon comes in, it's the post-Henrik Larsson era. Larsson's off to Barcelona, wins the, the Champions League and plays a massive part in doing that. Then he's on to play for Manchester United, which highlights just how incredible a talent he was and, and, and it should always be regarded as in world football. But when Gordon comes in, obviously, he's the the Bratislava nightmare in typical Celtic fashion where you think, oh, we'll get through that, no bother. And then you get that sort of shock and you have to adapt from there. But getting to the last 16 of the Champions League twice, I mean, just just how, how good were those runs? Because I know BT put on a few of the clips recently and you just watch some of the games and you think, wow, what an era that was as well. It was. And, you know, Gordon Stratton's record speaks for itself. Three in a row, and as you say, Champions League twice, getting through the, the group stages, and it was a very difficult job he he took on there, Callum, because, and I don't think it would have bothered Gordon that uh, as a player he probably didn't have a great relationship with Celtic fans. Sometimes that's you know the player should actually take that as a compliment. I'd have loved to have seen Gordon Strachan playing for Celtic, you know, even in his later days when he signed with Leeds, he'd have been a great signing. But you know there was a few flashpoints where he was a player and. Celtic fans remember them and Strachan is a certain way. I've interviewed Gordon Strachan and I actually find him very, very amusing. I think he's a very funny guy. Uh, but he's a certain, there's a certain way about him that some people don't take too well to. Completely different from Martin O'Neill in every single way. But I think we kind of got the signs, Callum, that there was going to be a different approach from Celtic. And I mean that from a kind of spending level because O'Neill had spent big. But in his last few seasons, you noticed that that couldn't continue, uh, particularly if the, the European success wasn't there. And we started bringing in players like we tried bringing in Janino, for example, didn't didn't work out. We brought in a, a striker called Henri Camara, who was on loan. And that didn't work out. We then brought in Bellamy, great signing, but it was just on loan. So you knew that the whole structure, the financial makeup of Celtic was changing and people and look at that and say, you, you know, we were stripping it back a wee bit. And we probably had to because we were competing with a side at that point, uh, domestically Callum, who, you know, were spending money way beyond their capabilities. And that, again, not controversial. It just it's come through uh, over the last few years. It's, it's just public knowledge. But Celtic were going toe-to-toe with that. And the difference being Celtic were actually spending the money genuinely, which means it was very difficult to keep up. And there came that point where we had to strip that back. And part of that was Gordon Strachan coming in. And I remember uh, the point that he made was that he had a transfer budget in his first season. 
and he had the opportunity to to buy Craig Bellamy permanently from Newcastle. And I think the transfer fee was five million. And then there would have been obviously the wages on top. But he realised that he needed strength elsewhere on the pitch, and he ended up bringing in not all at once, but he brought in Akar Boric initially on loan, but then he bought him uh, Nakamura and Magic Zaraski. Now you look at that, you think, well, at the time I'd have bitten your hand off for Craig Bellamy, but Strachan had to do things differently and a wee bit more low key. Once again, who really knew who Arthur Boric or Zaraski was? Who knew who Nakamura was? Probably none of us. But all three of them were very, very effective. And Strachan put together different different teams from, from O'Neill. Uh, a lot of people were not fans of the, the brand of football that he put on the pitch. But he was a successful manager, Callum. He was a very successful manager. And there was a, a few guys in there, I think, that you, you hoped for more from. You know, Thomas Gravison, you, you buy a player from Real Madrid, you would hope for a lot more from him. Derek Riordan brought in, at that time, the finest young striker in Scottish football by some distance. We bring in this, uh, Massimo Donati from AC Milan and you're expecting big things from those players. But a lot of the success stories from Strachan's time weren't the, the kind of classic players like that and the flamboyant entertaining players. It was more, you know, you always got a shift out to somebody like Paul Telfer. You know, so the signings that Strachan made probably weren't in the, the richest vein of Celtic traditions, but the success could not be argued with. And actually, the season where we didn't win the league under Strachan, uh, it was against a really, really poor side and we probably should have won four in a row under him. It was very interesting to speak to him just last year, Callum, <laughs> because he, he does have a very good sense of humour. And he, he's a very interesting guy and I would love to interview him again on camera because he's funny. He's very, very funny. So I enjoyed it. The football wasn't the same. It wasn't the same kind of feeling because he had to strip back and sell players like Chris Sutton, Alan Thompson, Neil Lennon, um, and eventually that Seville team, that whole era, started getting broken up. And uh, But he was a successful manager. So I, I look fondly back on Strachan's time. And he said something. I mean, he had a great relationship with Tommy Burns by the end of it. He said he came in, he wasn't a Celtic fan, but he left a Celtic fan. And I think he was being honest with that. I agree. And I've, I've been lucky enough, as you know, as the same as yourself, to, to be in Gordon's company a few times. And, and the words and the kind things he's got to say, not just about Tommy Burns, but Celtic as a club, as you say, shows that he took it to his heart what, during his time there and has since. Um, obviously, Tony Mowbray comes in. We know that doesn't work out. Neil Lennon then takes the reins and starts off this current nine or eight, set to be nine in a row era. I'll come to Neil Lennon shortly because obviously we can talk about what he's doing now and what he what he did and the foundations he put in place at the very start of this run. But I want to talk to you about Brendan Rodgers. And the reason I want to talk to you about Brendan is obviously the way he left Celtic has really ruined his relationship with a massively large part of the fan base or, or so it seems gathering on people you speak to and social media presence. Mm -hmm. Just with Brendan Rodgers, the statement of him coming in was incredible. Ultimately, in the end, though, you mentioned the European record. Do you feel that the first season, the 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 Invincibles, that's that's unbelievable and can't be taken away? But ultimately, in the end, it's going to sound strange saying this, but did you expect a little more from him? You know what I think, Callum, is the way that Celtic were dominating 
uh, although we continue to win leagues under Ronnie Dyler, for example, the way that we were performing and dominating under Brendan Rodgers, I thought that was a couple of seasons overdue. And I'm not trying to take away from Rodgers because he was the guy that came in and instilled a different mentality and approach to the Celtic squad and brought in some real quality players. Um, but when you look back on it, and you've got to look back on it without the um, the anger and the frustration and the disappointment that you felt when it ended the way it did, his European record was very disappointing. There was a couple of moments in, in his European games where, you know, you thought we might do something here, but you know, ultimately, it was a huge disappointment in Europe. And I think that when you're dominating in Scottish football, he's coming from a, a backdrop of managing an English football, and there's going to be an element of him using Celtic as a platform to get back into that game. Now, listen, at the moment, I, w- I would love to say no one can use Celtic, but we're, we're at a stage where it happens. It happens with players. And I think Celtic fans have started to accept that. So if you want to have a couple of seasons of Amusa Dembele or three seasons of Eduard, uh, the caveat is, Callum, that, that those players will go elsewhere and they'll go to a bigger league and they'll make a lot more money. And that's fine. I think Celtic fans you know, have accepted that. Well, I don't think we've ever had that with a manager. That was a difficulty. Uh, it should be the dream job. <laughs> and by all accounts, Brendan Rodgers told us it was the dream job, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, looking back on it, it's always going to be tinged by disappointment because of the way it ended. Uh, however, the European record was poor. Uh, overall, the signing record was poor. You know, if you look at all the signings that he made. And I think his conduct was poor near the end. He was saying a lot of things in interviews that should never, ever have been made public. He was making comments about the board. He was making it quite clear that his vision uh, was not in keeping with the board's vision. You remember the famous interview where he was talking about Terminado, and you think to yourself, who the hell do you think they are, Brendan? You're no bigger than the club. At that point, he believed brand Brendan or brand Rogers was more important than Celtic Football Club. And that's what ego does to you. We've all got an ego, Callum. Every one of us has got an ego. I wouldn't have a podcast if I didn't have an element of an, an ego. Of course you do. If you write a book and release a book and you've crafted all those words over 300 pages. There's an ego element, an egotistical element. Otherwise, it would never leave your laptop, you know? Um, But you've got to be aware of that and you can't allow it to run wild. And Brendan Rodgers must have the the biggest ego in football. But he's come up against Peter Lobel. (laughs) And to be fair, if there's going to be a battle uh, of egos, there's only going to be one winner. And that guy's still at Celtic. And, uh, you know, we look back on it now, and if we talk about Lenny and what he's done, it's just incredible. And he's maybe not as fancy and he's maybe not as charismatic, although I think he is a very charismatic man, Neil Lenny. Um, What he's done has been as good as, and it threatens to be even better when you look at the European record. But Rodgers, no doubt about it, great coach, fantastic coach. But, you know, his ego will be his downfall. Absolutely. You mentioned the, the ego there, and and obviously I think with Neil Lennon, something that interests me a bit, Neil, is the fact that he came in at the start he of the current era in terms of winning eight set to be nine in a row. Um, he started that era off, he came in after Mowbray, a really tough time, fan mm-hmm. base were split, crowds were down, 
he then brought the thunder back, as he famously said, built together a, an incredible team. You like likes of Hooper, Ledley, Winyama, um, even plenty of James Forrest coming through into the side. Scott Brown, obviously, was 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 there previously, but became an even bigger player under Neil Lennon in the first spell. Do you think this is again? This is my personal opinion. You might disagree. I actually think Lennon choosing to leave Celtic and the Bolton experience and the Hibs experience has helped actually make him now a better fit for Celtic in the sense that, unlike the likes of Rogers, as you say, building up a brand to then go elsewhere, Neil's been elsewhere and he's realised that the grass isn't always green on the other side. And I think for that now, you hear players like Scott Brown, James Forrest have worked with him before saying that he's mellowed. I think you can see that because there's a sense of contentment now that he's back at Celtic in the sense that why did I ever walk away from the best job in the world in his opinion? And now that he's got it back, I don't think he wants to ever give it away again. No, I think there's there's so many different elements to the the situation that Neil Lennon was in when he first departed. And actually it came as a bit of a shock. I remember I was doing an interview in Glasgow with a journalist. Uh, just before that that story broke, and nobody had an inkling. Absolutely nobody had an inkling that, that Neil Lennon was going to leave. But in many ways, I think you had to. I think you had to, probably for the, the benefit of his own his own well being. You know, I don't think anybody in the history of Celtic Football Club has taken a battering, physically and metaphorically, as much as Neil Neil Lennon has. I mean, it comes to the point, Callum, and he's spoken about his his own mental health battles as well. But to be a guy in one of the biggest profile managerial positions in European football is going to be hard enough. But to be battling uh, a media that portrays you as being a villain uh, and deserving of attacks and threats and this kind of thing, and for people to carry the attacks out, you know, in his first full season, 2011 at Tynecastle, and for, for the guy more or less to get away with the assault, you know, and get done for a common breach of the peace. It's on live television. Uh, millions of people saw that it was an assault. And it happened in the streets as well. You know, there was Ashton Lane um, assaults as well. Threats, bullets in the post, all that stuff. I think Neil Lennon had to get out. And I, I don't think, actually, I don't think it was um, primarily a football decision. So I think he's went away and he's come back stronger. I think he's come back as a stronger person. Uh, I think he's mentally stronger and I think he's a stronger manager. And he's, he's been able to go away and work with, within constraints that he probably wasn't used to at Celtic, with lesser quality in terms of his playing personnel. And it's made him a much better manager. It certainly has. I mean, he's come back, Callum, uh, a much more rounded gaffer. There's been a couple of occasions, <laughs> famously with Mikey Johnson at the Rugby Park, when he subbed him off when he was injured. There's been a couple of occasions, but uh, he's definitely a, a far, far more rounded manager now. And you know, I've spoken to a couple of his teammates who who would say the same. But you made that an excellent point there about Scott Brown. A massive part of Scott Brown's success has been the stewardship of Neil Lennon. He started playing like the Scott Brown we now know, and I know that he developed under Brendan Rodgers, but he started playing like the Scott Brown under Neil Lennon during Lenny's first period in charge. And you could you could look at other players as well. He gave James Forrest his debut. Um, and Forrest has turned into a modern-day legend at Celtic Park. He's going to play over 500 games for the club. 
he also, you know, deserves a load of credit this season for the way that he's handled Lee Griffiths. And he's managed to get Lee Griffiths back into a Celtic jersey, back into their first team, scoring goals. Uh, Neil Lennon deserves a huge amount of credit. It saddens me when you hear the same old, same old. He brings it on himself. And I remember I was in London one night working. And uh, so I was listening to the Celtic Dundee game. And it was on the same night where Hibs were playing hearts and Lenny got hit with a coin. You'll remember the occasion and he yes. hit the deck. And then after the game, the pundit on the radio that night was Gary Caldwell, ex-teammate in Lennon. And he says, you know, he brings it on himself. I couldn't believe my ears. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Um, and that kind of narrative needs to be shot down at every occasion. He doesn't bring it on himself. He's spoken about it uh, frankly and honestly. Callum, and, and the reason he's, he's treated or has been treated the way that he's been treated is because he's a Roman Catholic Northern Irishman in Scottish football and he's a captain of Celtic and he's a manager of Celtic and that, that's the reason he's been treated like that, make no bones about it, but um, he's definitely come back a much stronger and a better manager and you know people may think I'm getting carried away here, I honestly believe there's going to be European success at some level under Neil Lennon at Celtic well, as you say, his European record when he was in his first spell was, was impressive. The last 16, carrying on from Gordon Strachan's success in the Champions League. Um, well, relative success, of course, getting to the last 16. So, as you say, if there's going to be a manager who's been to that level in European football with a club before, who knows how to get the best out of the team. And then, and again, again, you don't, the way the club exited Europe this season is not what Neil wanted or the fan base but in some ways it could in a strange way be a blessing in disguise in the sense that I'm not accusing the players of complacency I don't know if Neil would but he might basically look at that now and say boys this happened last season last year but it's not going to happen again and it'll give them even more motivation to go again but while I've got you here Paul it's I need to talk to you about Celtic State of Mind Um, Mm. it's a podcast that I really enjoy but in addition to doing that podcast you're, you've also written books on Celtic and you produce documentaries as well I mean your career in in the sort of media element of Celtic is just for the effort all to see the Quality Street Gang a very very important book I believe that someone had to write and I'm glad it was you because it's a really high quality book you've got Celtic Smiler I recently watched the, the film of that, which is available available on Amazon Prime, which I really enjoyed mm. as well. And and in terms of being a fan of the club, you've talked through your journey from being a kid, seeing your dad going to the games, you going to the games, seeing success, getting to Seville, all of the experiences you've had. Just how did you get involved with working on Celtic, whether that be from the writing, the documentary, or the podcast perspective? It was not by design it certainly was not by design i had always been interested in various different uh, creative outlets music art and writing and uh, i spent years dedicated to uh, being in bands spent years dedicated to art and then i moved into something that comes hand in hand with that because you've got the whole artistic theory column of you know, you've not only got to look at art history when you're studying art, but you've also got to somehow try and explain concepts, conceptual art, and whatever you're creating and, and the reasons behind it. You know, there's a lot of theory behind that. 
So it goes hand in hand with uh, literature and it goes hand in hand with English. So, you know, the three things that I loved when I was at school was um, art, English and PE. So it was uh, the thing with music, Callum, I loved music, but I just never ever thought that, you know, you were pushed into it. Uh, I I don't think that it was one of the things I always think the the best musicians are self-taught from working class backgrounds. You know, I never ever had an inkling to start playing the piano or any of that kind of stuff. I was just a massive fan. And that ended up with me being in bands and writing songs and setting up events and gigs. You mentioned the fact that you were involved in those elements. In terms of the development of those, how did they develop into where you are now? Because when it comes to media and live events associated with Celtic, you're one of those names, one of probably only two that I can think of that's top of the tree for who people want to get and who people want to speak to because of the the very successful work that you've done. I think the the kind of transition from just doing it out of fun to then put it into a Celtic focus was uh, going back again to my youth and where I came from, there was a there was a guy called George Conley from High Valleyfield and you, you're kind of growing up playing football for Valleyfield uh, with this mythical character. And I always remember growing up, Callum, thinking to myself, somebody needs to write a book about him. He was a hero to all those kids from High Valleyfield because basically at that time you left the school and you went down the pits, but he swapped the pit boots for football boots and played on the European stage. So I always had that in my mind. There was always something in there that I wanted to write a book on George. But obviously George wrote his own book. So I shifted my focus a wee bit and I thought to myself, what I'll do is I'll write the book on the Quality Street Gang. And I did that with absolutely no knowledge of how to go about um, compiling a book, editing a book, publishing a book, any of that stuff. I just decided I'm going to do it. And no matter what happened, no matter whether or not I got a publishing deal from Celtic, which eventually happened, I was going to release that book, Callum. I just had that in my mind. And I had nothing beyond that. It was just I was going to do that, and that was it. And what I find, and you'll be finding this yourself, you meet one person, and that one person introduces you to another couple of really important people in your journey. And that just grows and grows and grows. And so before you knew it, there's a picture on the back of that Quality Street Gang book. And I was determined to interview everybody in the picture, which I eventually did, plus loads of other guys. But from that, you know, I built up a network of contacts who, to this day, have assisted me. And so the Celtic book came out. And as I said to you, I had no plans after that. I didn't really know at that stage about podcasting. I didn't know about um, freelance writing, uh, documentaries, nothing. And it's just everything that, that I have produced or, or released has led on to the next thing. So the Quality Street Gang, there was a player in there who wasn't part of the gang. He came a bit later called Brian McLaughlin, the first Brian McLaughlin. And his best mate was John Sludden. So John Sludden gets invited to the launch night. And unbeknown to me, John Sludden is Neely Mockin's nephew. Now, John Sludden played for Celtic as a youth. So I then get introduced to young Neely Mockin, who's Neely Mockin's son. And through that relationship, um, I eventually write the Neely Mockin book. From writing the Neely Mockin book comes the, the documentary offer. And it goes on and on. So when I'm, I'm writing the Neely Mockin book, I interview Andy Lynch. And Andy uh, spends a lot of time overseas. And as soon as I finished the interview, Callum, he phoned me right back and he asked me to write his book. So as you can see, the whole thing just developed 
from the, the previous project, if you want to call it that, and the Celtic kit book, which is uh, going to be released imminently. That came from the fact that Neely Malkin Jr. inherited his dad's collection, which is believed to be the biggest Celtic jersey collection in the world. Uh, so everything I've done is interlinked. And from that, I started appearing on a few podcasts that uh, wanted to talk about the books and stuff like that, Callum. And that introduced me to podcasts. And then I started realizing that when I was doing interviews for the books, so for example, the Quality Street Gang, 60 people were interviewed for that. Nearly Malkin, I interviewed 50. Most of that material has never been heard or seen because you focus on the two or three paragraphs that are relevant to the story. So through doing the podcast, I realized I need to get what I'm doing out there so that the Celtic fans can enjoy the whole one hour or half an hour conversation rather than the one paragraph. And that's why I started up a Celtic state of mind. And I just, I thought to myself, I'll do it at my kitchen table, Callum, and then just developed it from there. Started doing it in the recording studios from there pretty quickly. Within a year, uh, a Celtic state of mind was voted the, the best football podcast in the UK at a swanky do down in London at Alexandra Palace. And it's just, it's like that scene in Wallace and Gromit where the dog's putting down the train tracks as the train's still going. I've no idea where it's going. No idea. Just rolling with it, you know, just going with it. Uh, but the stability that Axon's given me means that everything I do can be centrally based around a Celtic state of mind. Uh, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And I've got loads and loads of plans. Uh, sometimes there's not enough hours in the day, Callum, as I think you've probably realised yourself. Absolutely. You're, you're spot on with that in terms of you think to yourself, right, I'll get this done, I'll get that done. And then you know what it's like. When, whenever you get an interview with, with a particular person, you might get introduced to somebody else and then what you thought you were going to go on to do next, you go off on a sort of tangent before then having to come back. But as, mm. I'm, as, as I'm sure you would agree, you wouldn't change it for the world. And the success of the podcast has been, been there for all to see. In terms of the future, you mentioned the fact you've got so many exciting plans. You've hosted many live events. There's been a few Celtic State of Mind live events as is the live event scene something that the podcast could develop in the future? Because I think with your expertise of hosting live events and the contacts you've got, I think that's something a lot of people would really like. I think so, Callum. The key for me, and I, you know, as I said before we started chatting, I just think you know, there's, a, there's a lot of people out there, and probably in all walks of life actually, but I've come across very few, but there's a few people out there who really just want to you know, produce a lot of content with no many... Um, truths, it's all half truths and quick, you know, quick news and quick bait. And I, I realized very, very early on the key is not to do that. And if you do something truthful with, with, with good bespoke content, original content, then people will take to it. So that could be a live event, a book, a documentary, uh, or a podcast. And that, that's my key, and that runs through everything that I do. But in terms of the, the actual the plans that I've got. The Quality Street Gang was released in 2013, but I started writing it in 2010. So I've been at this now for 10 years, and just a couple of months back, I decided I'm going to go full-time on it. And my, my plan is there will be regular live events. Um, at the moment, we're doing daily podcasts. I think we've done 50-odd over the last 50-odd days. Uh, loads of video content. Um, and, you know, produce quality every time. So we're, we've got a number of authors who have come along who want their books. They've maybe previously gone through big publishing houses, Callum, but the whole landscape's changed. 
so I'm working with a few authors and I'll be publishing their books as well because I know how the process works having done it with four different publishers and we'll do the whole thing from start to finish design edit marketing everything will be under a Celtic state of mind so we've got a couple of books coming out um, over the next six months or so I love the live events because you meet people it's funny it's actually quite laid back you've got to be prepared for it obviously but it's just another facet of what you're doing on the podcast not everybody's into podcasts so you try and cover all bases and they get the same experience uh they get a few pints a few laughs and they get to meet their heroes and so they are <laughs> so everybody's a winner you know absolutely and as, as i said at the start of this i've been to many events that you've hosted um especially down in greenock and i've really enjoyed them and in terms of the future i'm, I, I'm going to start the quick fire question round by putting you on the spot if you could pick three legends from the club's history who you've not had the chance to interview yet for a Celtic State of Mind live event, who would those three be and why? Right, Henrik Larson. I'll, I'll give you the names and I'll give you quick reasons. Henrik Larson, Fergus McCann and Paul McStay. And the reason for the three of them, Fergus, just because the guy saved the club, he's never really told his story, he's never really courted any kind of adulation. And I think we could learn a lot from him, even now, Callum. There's a lot of things happening in Scottish football that are wrong, and there has been over the last few years. And I think sometimes you need a figure like Fergus, who he's just a businessman, hard-nosed businessman, not interested in upsetting people. Uh, and I try not to live my life like that, but some people do it and do it well. I'd love to interview him. Paul McStay, for me, one of the last all-time legends who will spend his entire career at a football club. We might get that with Jamesy Forrest. But McStay as well, never ever told his story, Callum. You know, he's, he's always been a very uh, quiet guy, quite unassuming family man, and then he moved to Australia. And I just believe there's been a lot happened in the background. Why is he no longer at Celtic? Why is people like, like Paul McStay no longer at Celtic Park? I don't understand that, you know, especially for the youth coming through. And Henrik Larson, ah, I mean, world-class. He was a world-class player. And I don't think we've seen many of them. Uh, at Celtic in recent times but Henrik Larson was world class I'd love to tap into his mentality Callum because Andy Lynch said an interesting thing to me Andy played for Celtic as did his son Simon and they both played you know alongside incredible number sevens Andy played alongside Kenny Dalglish Simon played alongside Henrik but when they speak to each other Simon and Andy it's almost as if they're describing the same player the way they approached the game the way they were able to maintain such a high standard of performance through a number of years and there's something to be said there how did he manage to to get himself so focused every single time he played for Celtic very very few bad games did Henrik Larson play and I'm not looking through rose tinted spectacles I've seen most of his games and he played very few bad games for Celtic I'd love to tap into how he's able to do that because no many players can do that you know uh, getting into the right frame of mind so they're, the, they're my top three Celtic interviews that I'd love to do You've mentioned the fact those are your top three Celtic ones. What if I said to you top three that, that can't be associated with Celtic? Who would they be? Paolo Maldini, Ruth Hullett and Diego Maradona would be oh. my three. <laughs> wow. See, growing up, Callum, I mean, I'm Celtic, I'm Celtic through and through now. I, I'm not that interested in football outside of Scotland. It, it's strange because when I was growing up, I just engulfed myself in all types of football 
and you were growing up and you knew world superstars. Everybody, you know, knew AC Milan players. We knew, we knew who um, Diego Maradona was playing for. We knew Marco Van Basten, Dennis Bergkamp. These guys that were coming into British football as well, we knew them before they came in. And monology that era was really good for world football. And those three guys, just because, what a talent. I'd also love to interview Eric Cantona. I think Cantona would be one of my dream interviews. No, just for football. Oh, if you ever get him, don't do it as a podcast, do it as a live event. I'll buy tickets for it. What I just imagine having the chance to speak with him, he would just be, he would be, be incredibly interesting. The next thing I want to ask you about, Paul, um, just a few things off topic and off football. You mentioned the fact you're a big art lover, big music lover. Who would you say are your top five favourite bands? Good question. Um, I'm looking at my record collection right here. Um, the Stone Roses would be up there for kind of modern, modern music. They made a huge impact on me growing up. You know, any band, Callum, that not only the music resonates, but they changed the style of a nation, and they did. A whole generation started dressing and walking like the Stone Roses. So they would be in my top five. There's a band called Love, whose front man was Arthur Lee. Love wrote a, an album called Forever Changes in 1967, which is a masterpiece, Callum, and was the blueprint for so many other bands to follow. Uh, they would be in my top five, absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, I'm going to give you some modern and some... Um, from back in the day. I'm going to have to say the Beatles, and I know that that's maybe a, a predictable choice, but I was named after two of them, and I was brought <laughs> up on I was brought up on the Beatles because my dad was a big fan. Um, so definitely the Beatles. You've also got to look at uh, artists such as uh, Marvin Gaye, because you know, you've got to look at the vocal ability of somebody like Marvin Gaye, and you know, that talent only comes around once in a lifetime. And modern day again, I'm going to go for Primal Scream because not only are they big Celtic fans, and I had the great honour of going to the Lazio game with Andrew Innes, who's a guitarist at the Primal Scream, but uh, every album they've done has been challenging. Every album has been different from the previous one. And they, to this day, and I've just seen them at the end of last year, are incredible live. So what have we got? Primal Scream, The Stone Roses, Love, Marvin Gaye and The Beatles. There's the five, top five bands, artists. Absolutely tremendous. Staying on the kind of top five element, if you were hosting a sort of dinner party or a night at the pub, whatever you whatever you prefer, and you could choose five people involved with football or not involved with football, who would you choose? Dead or alive? Dead or alive. Uh, up to you. Up to you. <laughs> well, the dinner party, did you say five? I would go for uh, Eric Cantona. Yep. He would be a good dinner guest. Stanley Kubrick, who obviously filmed the moon landings, Callum, if you're into your conspiracy theories. So uh, Stanley Kubrick would be there without a shadow of a doubt. Just to throw a bit of madness into the occasion, I would have Liam Gallagher there as well, <laughs> just so that I, <laughs> I could drink red wine with him. Um, I would also, you know, if it was a, a figure from the past, um, dead or alive, it's got to be, it's got to be Jock Steen. Jock Steen's blueprint um, was passed down the, the ages, you know, it, it gets watered down through the ages, but uh, he passed it on to Fergie, and Fergie's passed it on, and it continues and continues, so I would definitely have half him, and you know, I'm a big reader, I, I would definitely have Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde, the finest man ever to put pen to paper, the finest writer 
in the history of humankind. And I would love to pick his brains in. He was Irish as well. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely have Oscar as well. Oscar would be part of my dinner party. That's sensational. And I'm, I'm putting you in the spot with this one. Going to take you out of your comfort zone here. If you could choose one player from the other half of Glasgow, and I don't mean Partick Thistle, to be able to have played for Celtic, who would you have chosen and why? Jim Baxter. Absolutely no doubt. No doubt about it, Jim Baxter. Jim Baxter was a fifer. He probably lived about six miles away from where I'm sitting just now. And when you drive into Hillabeath, there's a, a bronze statue, Baxter, peering over everybody that walks into the village or drives into the village. And he still looks nonchalant to this day. He was a genius. I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking to people who shared the pitch with him. Some of his teammates, Willie Wallace was a teammate of Jim Baxter's at Wraith Rovers, as was Dennis Mockin, who was Neely Mockin's brother, who's still with us, thankfully. And a wee guy for Fife. You know, he was adopted. There was no hope for Jim Baxter. The boy was a, one of the finest footballers in European football. He did keep you up against England at Wembley. What else can I say? It would need to be Baxter, Slim Jim. Absolutely tremendous. And the last question I've got for you, Paul, if you could, other, well, I was going to say about um, Jock Steen, but you could, I suppose he's probably going to be the obvious answer here. But if you could choose any Celtic manager, past or present, to play under, who would it be and why? That is a good question. That would, you know, and the obvious answer is is Steen, right? The obvious answer is Steen. Um, but you know, up up to a point, Celtic didn't have many managers when when I was a, a young guy going to the game. Billy McNeil was the sixth Celtic manager, and we've had quite a few since then. I think Neil Lennon would scare me a wee bit if he gave me the hair dryer. <laughs> uh, to be honest, but <laughs> I'm going to go for Martin O'Neill. I'm going to go for O'Neill. I think O'Neill was a thinker. Uh, he was a bit kind of different as well, by all accounts. Didn't go on the training pitch much. Picked the team. Could make you feel uh, 100 feet tall. Could put you in your place. Uh, and I was one of the disappointing things of the lockdown is I had an interview lined up with Mark O'Neill, which I'm still hoping to do. I just find the guy really, really intriguing. Uh, and genuine as well. Uh, very, very genuine. So I would love to play under Mark O'Neill. I'd work my backside off for him. Absolutely tremendous, Paul. It's been a pleasure. I wish you and Celtic State of Mind nothing but success for the future because, as I say, when it comes to podcasts, um, I really enjoy listening to it because it's got a unique blend of guests. It's not just the obvious guests, and I think that's what, for me, makes it special because when you get a, a good blend and, and you're passionate about what you do, I think that's, that, that's the main way forward, and that's what I enjoy listening to. So keep up the great work, and again, thank you for being on CFB tonight. Thanks for asking, and you keep up the good work too, Callum, and if you get Eric Cantona before me, uh, make sure you give me a, uh, an opportunity to listen to that, because I, I, I wouldn't put an end past you, by the way, I think you might, you might be able to get him. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So we'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will all be open, they'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song. Dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all